Over the past 30 years, shifts in language and education policies have resulted in the marginalization and exclusion of world languages in the Australian education system. This has resulted in an English for all literacy mindset. These policies have reduced access to world languages education in Australia. On this episode, we speak with Daniel Heinrichs from the University of Queensland, who draws on disciplines such as sociolinguistics and critical theories to explore the notion of responsible language practices with relation to Spanish as a world language in the Australian education system. Uh, so Daniel, uh, welcome to Halftime Scholars. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess uh, a good place to start would be can you tell us a little bit about your research journey before your PhD work? How did that um, start and uh, what inspired you uh, initially? I think it's quite a long journey starting probably back when I was 10 years old. I went to Europe with my mum and my sister. I have family in Germany. They also had a holiday house in Spain, so we got to hear lots of different languages, particularly because the part of Spain that we were in was uh, a little while out of Valencia in a place called Denia. And they speak Valenciano there. We were also hearing Spanish, German, just all these languages. So I was very much inspired to study languages once I had the opportunity at university. So my family are certainly one big inspiration, but it was really towards the end of my degree that I, I guess, got a little bit more inspired to focus on the Indigenous education side of things as well. I volunteered as part of a program called AIM, which is the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. I think they have it at a number of universities still. And I worked with an Indigenous student and I guess just became aware of the importance of Indigenous education. It really opened my eyes to a lot of things. So when I did my master's, I decided to focus on the framework for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages, which had just been released at the time I was doing my master's. So definitely lots of languages influencing it but different angles I guess I, I was thinking to myself being in Australia it's hard not to think about Indigenous languages and I was very aware of the ways in which Indigenous people Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had been impacted in the language area in a similar way to what I guess I was feeling in that I, I didn't feel like I had a strong connection to my heritage language for different reasons but it was really that loss and mourning of my my heritage language that that got me to where I am today. Sounds a very, very uh, a reflective journey. So that's, that sounds very interesting. So from that point, after your master's, what actually inspired you to get into the space of researching responsible language practices? So I suppose a little bit more about my master's. I did also go to the Tiwi Islands, which is about three hours by boat from Darwin, where a friend of mine was working and, and the language there is amazing. It's one of the, the strongest Indigenous languages, I would say, in Australia, and it's an incredibly remote part of Australia. And I just was blown away by how well the kids spoke Tiwi, by how proud they were of it. And it really got me thinking about the fact that that's not necessarily how most heritage speakers feel about their language in Australia. It's not how I felt. I was really thinking about my time in the classroom as a learner of languages of Spanish and German and the fact that we were pushed to be perfectionists, that we were memorising and wrote learning how to conjugate verbs. And yeah, I can see you nodding, you know the feeling of learning yeah. a language and, and all of that and trying to be perfect, but also knowing it was just a completely unrealistic 
expectation and that I could communicate so well without necessarily needing to do that. And I was also aware that there are so many benefits to uh, learning a language beyond speaking it perfectly. So I was very much then interested in thinking about, well, what are our responsibilities then around language education? If it's not speaking and writing perfectly, if it's not the grammar, what are our responsibilities and to whom and why? Uh, with a particular focus and interest in heritage speakers, because that's, I guess, the perspective I was coming from. So uh, you discovered uh, uh, some of the, I guess, indigenous languages in different parts of Australia. You mentioned an interesting fact that, which I also share your, I guess, experience partially learning a bit of Spanish, like the expectation of having uh, the perfect way of putting a sentence together or rote memory uh, and, you know, going through kind of a classic top-down or very um, traditional way of learning a language, whilst native speakers, obviously, they're free. They Obviously, they have the backing of listening and working and living in that language. Do you find that there is an opportunity for learning languages for, you know, non-native speakers? Is there something that could you think could be revised or changed? What What is your sort of uh, mm. uh, opinion or ideas around that? Yeah, I guess I'm quite interested in just challenging what is this idea of non-native speakers anyway, because in Australia, what that is, is so complicated because we have so many kids in our classes who have some kind of connection with a language through their heritage. But I agree with you that also it would be really beneficial that all Australians or all people in the whole world are learning a language. In fact, in most of the world, it's very common that you are bilingual and speak multiple languages. It's quite unique in Australia that we are by and large, monolingual. So I do think, yes, for non-native speakers, that we we should be encouraging learning languages. But I don't think the approach of pushing perfectionism is the way to go with it. I think that's really quite disheartening when you are a non-native speaker to be told, oh, well, you're never going to be as good as a native speaker. That's certainly something I felt as a learner of Spanish and German. And I just would hate to think that students would feel that way, particularly for those students who are heritage speakers or have a heritage connection, because I think that that does add an, add an added layer of pressure to learning it because you've got that family connection as well. So certainly we need to be getting more students learning languages and non-native speakers would be the biggest group doing that. But how that's done at the moment is, I think, highly problematic. And certainly my experience in the classrooms teaching in schools, being that teacher, is also something that's influenced what I'm doing in my PhD and caused me to ask for what are our responsibilities in regards to that because so much of it comes back to the curriculum. But then you've got all these other questions around students who are native speakers or non-native speakers or heritage speakers or whatever they are as well. It's really interesting, and I, I like the way you classified it as heritage speakers, non-native. I mean, that's, some, that's a new way of kind of looking at learner groups. That's, that's definitely quite interesting. So from this point, uh, Daniel, uh, researching responsible language practices, what does it actually mean? And uh, if you could sort of elaborate what specifically your research topic is uh, a bit broadly. Sure. So when I say responsible and when you see it written, it makes a bit more sense because it's actually response and dash able. And it's uh, very much a theoretical concept, but it means the capacity to respond. So it doesn't just mean what our ethical or moral responsibilities are. It's actually considering what can we actually do, because sometimes there are things that are beyond our capacity or things that are within our capacity that maybe we're not being encouraged to do. 
So I'm very much interested in that. At first, I was planning to do action research, so to go into schools to get teachers to think up strategies for this and then try it out in their classrooms. Because of COVID, that obviously couldn't happen. I was supposed to be in there in term two, and I kind of felt that I had a responsibility not to be putting the pressure of my project on teachers this year. And as a result, I had to drastically rescope my project and I didn't end up doing that. So from that point, how did you rescope and how did you change uh, and what did you change it to in terms of uh, the research topic and what was the specific gap that you identified that the, the new change was kind of uh, uh, merited uh, for the investigation? Yeah, I guess it was, I mean, I couldn't have planned this PhD now with what it looked like now if I tried, but I'm so happy with it. I'm much more comfortable. It feels so much more me. And, you know, if someone had told me I had to choose between action research and what I'm doing now at the start, there's no way I would have gone with the action research. So um, I was really lucky that last December I attended a conference and I saw an honours student actually present on something called social media scrollback method. So It's as simple as it sounds. You have the participant scrolling back through whichever social media you would like to use. And she was using Instagram and they narrate that so they can stop on any posts that are related to your topic. She was doing um, female bodybuilders and how they, I think, expressed emotion or something like that. So that's what she did. Obviously, in my project, I had a really simple question. It was just I asked teachers to scroll back through their Facebook timelines and pause on any posts and narrate them if they thought they were relevant to responsible Spanish languaging practices. So we did it via Zoom because I did this all during lockdown. So um, they would share their screens with me and scroll through, comment on any posts. These posts didn't have to be necessarily posts that contained Spanish. It could be anything else. So I was really lucky to be able to capture a lot of the political climate around school closures, lockdown, emergency remote teaching that I hadn't planned for. So in terms of the gap that my project has addressed, I obviously think that talking about Spanish in Australia is a gap in itself. There's just not a lot of research on that. There's a lot in the US, barely anything from Australia because it's not huge here. But Because I did this not only in relation to COVID, but during lockdown, I've ended up having this other really unique uh, element to my project that I I couldn't have planned and I highly doubt many other people will have because I was just also really lucky that my ethics got approved so quickly that I was able to do this during lockdown and that the teachers got back to me so quickly, otherwise it couldn't have happened. So that's probably one gap. There is another gap that I suppose it's hitting on and it comes back to being able to incorporate the political elements of what's going on. And I'm also working with university educators of Spanish. So we know there's been recent changes to the higher education bill and I've been holding off on interviewing the university academics because I'm hoping like the high school teachers had, that the university academics will have been sharing things on their Facebook that they can speak to in that interview. So a lot of gaps that I hadn't planned for there, which has been a surprising and I guess a a good finding to have. You've uh, adapted and and, uh, found a whole new uh, way of piecing together the project and also probably changing the direction. Mm. Obviously, you, you didn't end up doing the action research, but do you feel that 
the outcomes from where you can see right now would be, would be totally like totally different from what you may have expected uh, in, within a classroom setting or within a more like a social media setting? hundred percent. Obviously, if I'd done the action research, I would have been looking at teaching strategies. And I just don't think we're there yet with this kind of research into Spanish in Australia. In the US, they've been doing it for so long and they've been looking at how Spanish is going and what people think about Spanish or languages for so long and in such detail. But we just haven't. We haven't even asked people, you know, my really simple question yet. So I do think it makes much more sense to do what I'm doing now. And the other thing I really love about it is that having done the the social media scroll back, it's really longitudinal. So you get to go back really far and you also get to incorporate things that if I was in a classroom, there's no way these would have come into my research. And even just doing, I did also do focus groups. I forgot to mention, even doing the focus groups, these things, they never came into it because I've realized your Facebook timeline is almost a version of your memory that that we can see. There's things on there that teachers might have preferred to scroll past, they tried to avoid, and when that's normally just in your head, I can't access that. I have no idea what's in there unless you speak it. But when it's on their timeline, there's so much that I get to ask about or expand on or that I know as the researcher would be really good to talk about that the teachers might not have focused on. And if you're face-to-face or anything like that and you don't have that social media there, you as the researcher don't know about it and so you can't ask about it or it might not come up if it's not already in your research questions. So certainly not doing the action research, yet yeah, the, the findings are totally different. They're much more personal. They're much more political. They're much more um, longitudinal. They're much more in-depth. They're just, I think, a thousand times better. I can't speak highly enough of how simple this method is but how just fun it was as well to do two questions actually popped into my mind when you uh, mentioned about uh, you said firstly um, there's a lot of studies and a lot of um, i guess data about spanish in the u.s uh, obviously spanish being uh, or hispanics or latinos being a you know, part of the ethnic uh, fabric of the u.s uh, that would probably be a, a normal thing that is research but so if there isn't much research about it in Australia what is the general opinion do you feel about the use of Spanish in Australia uh, or is there anything that you have seen you know nominally or in a very uh, kind of uh, superficial way in terms of research what are some of those thoughts or findings that you've researched Mm. or read? Mm. So certainly Spanish is uh, one of the most popular languages to study particularly at university level, there's a lot of interest in it. I think people think it's really easy. And to be honest, it's very similar to English. If your first or or a strong language for you is English, then potentially Spanish is going to be pretty straightforward. It's phonetic. Grammar's not terribly complicated unless you get into the subjunctive, which still kills my life to this day. But I think that's one of the opinions. At the school level, it is a little bit different just because there's far less consistency. But certainly I taught in a Spanish immersion program and there are similar thoughts with with what students think about Spanish. The school that I was at, they could choose between Mandarin or Spanish. And the general sort of uh, discourse from the students around which one they would choose would be, well, Spanish is the fun one. Spanish is the one where we're going to learn about all these different cultures and be dancing in class. And Chinese or Mandarin is the one that's going to be really serious 
and very rigorous and very academic. And that's not necessarily true. I know that in the the Mandarin classes, they were doing music and dancing and having fun. And in Spanish, we were also quite strict with the grammar at times when it needed to be. So yes, that's probably what I see from students. In terms of the research, there's really not a lot. There is a little bit coming out of Melbourne. There is one researcher down there who is looking at something similar to my project, but with languages in general. And she's done some research on Spanish as well, asking similar questions to me. So people really, I guess, are are still asking, well, what do we think about it? Rather than getting to the stage of doing too much more than that. There is certainly some research, but it might be more around enrollment numbers And I've also done some research on the ways that it's advertised in course descriptions at universities. And yeah, I guess that is indicative of what we promote. And so I guess that's something else I would point out is that at the university level, I can certainly see a trend. And that's what my paper looked at was uh, for some of the more radical and critical themes within the language learning itself. But they tend to be kept for the second and third year of language learning and most of the learners drop out after the first year so they're not necessarily getting to study those really radical topics i guess um, and they probably lose the fun after the first year so yeah the, the second part of the, or the second question i had was a little bit related to the methodology itself for example you mentioned obviously the scroll back method and it's literally what it sort of sounds like that throws a lot of ethical sort of questions, I guess probably potential landmines that you have to navigate for yourself as well as for your uh, participants, as well as from the uh, university side. So how did that, and you mentioned that the ethics was approved quite quickly. So in this uh, highly kind of charged atmosphere on anything, everyone's on like virtually on steroids <laughs> for anything to kind of yeah. go, especially on social media, certain platforms. How was that? ethical consideration and how did you maintain that at the uh, the individual in- interview level as well? That's a really good question and something that I'm still following up as I start writing up the findings for this. So part of the reason it was approved so quickly is because I was able to do an amendment to my original application, which is always quicker. So I already had permission to speak with teachers and to contact them through Facebook, actually. So my original method of contacting participants was through a Facebook page. So I didn't have to ask for that again. I just had to change how I was doing my interviews. And essentially, uh, one of the biggest things that I did to minimize issues with ethics is that I didn't record the screen. So if I'd recorded the screen, you can probably imagine there would have been hundreds of other people's names and data appearing in my research. And it would have been impossible for me to redact that. It would have been impossible for me to get informed consent from all those people. It just really, I couldn't. It also meant when I asked the teachers to narrate their timelines that I would say, can you please choose posts that you have written and and constructed or that are from publicly available sources. So if you've shared a newspaper article, it's public anyway. Or if you've written a status update, that would be okay. Let's avoid things that other people shared on your timeline. But it, it is really hard because there's really just no hard or fast rule around that as well. If you're describing what someone else posted on your timeline, the ethics are a little bit unclear with that. So some people have done that. I haven't used that in writing anything up. 
And then there's sort of a second part to that. And that's when I actually do go to write it up because, for example, I'm doing a book chapter at the moment and they'd really like some examples of the posts. And I thought, okay, can I, for example, put the original article that maybe was shared from an SBS Facebook page as an example post, not the one the teacher shared on their timeline uh, with their name on it, but or could I pick pick a similar one? So I did have a conversation with my supervisor who's on the ethics board about this. I also met up with a data scientist from QT to ask the same question. And essentially they both said as long as it was a publicly available post from a public organization that didn't have any identifying material about the participant, then that should be fine and I should reference it. Once you start looking at comments or anything like that, it does get a bit more difficult. So I'm definitely not using anything like that because ethics-wise, that would just be way too hard. But essentially, my biggest tips were don't record the screen, avoid naming other people, which is a pretty common thing, and focusing on things that the teachers themselves posted. And if I want to use an example, referencing it and using either a similar publicly available example or a publicly available example, if possible. That's a lot of, um, I guess, different factors to take into account, especially because it's kind of the, the, the big wide open world in terms of information and communication thoughts, uh, because everything is partially political and obviously everyone has their biases and confirmation biases and echo chambers and how did you, um, without naming names, like if, for example, a researcher, I'm sort of getting into the finding state, but maybe just a little bit before that, like if, for example, you, you know, you were interviewing a participant uh, and we'll say they had either shared or been uh, someone else had shared on their Facebook page or something, um, probably, you know, it could be harmless or it could be kind of charged in terms of politically. How did that play out? Well, I mean, I'm pretty radical myself and my methods. And and if you ever see my thesis written, you'll probably think I'm nuts because it's not even written like a traditional thesis. So if something like that comes up, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm embracing it and I want to know more about it. And I think that was probably more of an ethical question for me doing this research using the social media because like I said before, I can see that that's there and I can ask about it. I mean, the participant could completely shut me down and not talk about it but I've already seen it and then it's kind of already made its way into the transcript they've always got the option to redact it when I send it back to them for approval but certainly there were so many examples of things that teachers you know political things that teachers brought up and and I would say that pretty much every time it was them bringing it up and highlighting it and it also is possible that Spanish teachers are pretty open to that stuff. They're, they're not going to be your most conservative teachers, I don't think. So they're usually pretty happy to talk about things. And I think building a bit of rapport with your participants helps to get them to open up with that sort of thing. And having social media there, which has got so much about their lives, really helps with that too. So it's got their kids on there and it's got their pets and it's got their travels. And even if I'm just having a quick chat with them about things before we start the official interview, you just, it's, it's a little bit easier to build rapport with them. So I found they were more than willing to share those things. And I think those are the most interesting things to include in 
my research, to be honest. I completely embrace it. If I felt it was something that would be putting them in any kind of danger, then I, I would certainly think twice. There's been nothing that's that serious. I'm talking about the use of Spanish in Australia, so no one's at huge risk, I don't think, but it would certainly be a consideration. If I was doing a really sensitive topic, I know that some other research has done eating disorders, for example, it would be a whole different ballgame. But I have a topic that's less of a risk in that regard. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. I think that really, and I, I guess to the to the point that when one builds a sort of a rapport with uh, research participants, uh, a lot of people do like to kind of share and uh, go through their uh, their kind of history, especially when when it's played and you know you ask about family and uh, every other thing that they the hobbies and things like that. Moving on, uh, Daniel. So what were some of the you may you probably alluded to some of them earlier, but. At this stage of, I believe you're in your post-research phase or field or fieldwork stage, what are some of these findings that are emerging and some of the themes that you're seeing? And is there anything that has really surprised you? Yeah, I think probably the first thing that really surprised me was I did focus groups and I did analyze those and it was really boring what I found. It wasn't interesting. I shared it at a conference in Prague last December and there were quite a few people from the US, so they, they were familiar with research on Spanish in the US, and everyone was kind of like, meh, we've heard all this before, it's nothing particularly interesting. And so to address that initially, I analysed it differently. So rather than doing a thematic analysis, I went back to it and I did what's called a diffractive analysis, and that's all about looking for affirmative differences and alternative transgressive data, so things like affect and emotion just super random things, dream data. So yeah, um, just I've, I've got a paper under review for that, which goes into more detail because it does get kind of complicated trying to explain it all. But that was sort of one finding that I had is that really there has been a lot of research on some of the stuff I'm doing. So in order to make it interesting and to present something that is novel, that is addressing a gap, I need to analyze it differently. So that was one approach. Then I did the scroll back interviews and there was just so much that came out of it. Probably one of the biggest things is the fact that I'm talking about emergency remote education. That's a huge field that I had never imagined, never planned to include. And I'm currently working on a book chapter for it because I ended up with so many comments from teachers about it, so many posts that they had shared. And I think, so that was a really interesting one. And I guess just the fact that this research method worked so well because I had to do it so quickly. The interest that teachers had in getting involved with it, I just, I couldn't keep up with the number of people contacting me saying that they would like to be involved in the study. So I did have to cap it in the end and say, I think I've got enough. And I couldn't get them to stop talking. I would say after 45 minutes, okay, I'm really respectful of your time. Let's wrap it up. And they would say, no, no, it's fine. Let's keep going. And they would just keep scrolling. So I suppose the fact that I mean, those are just some really basic things in terms of the specific findings. Yeah, the political stuff was was really good to see that teachers had that on there. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I've only really done a little bit of analysis on the emergency remote teaching that has come out of it. The other parts I haven't quite done yet. But I think something else I will focus on is the ways, the different linguistic elements that I'll be able to analyse as well. So there's a lot of uh, shift in linguistic analyses that's incorporating what are called transsemiotic elements and those can be things like emojis and visual 
things as well. So certainly that would be one. And just this idea of agency. So we often hear about in research, you want to give your participants agency. And I thought, well, they're, they're doing the scrolling. So they have agency. They're in control of the interview. I'm not as in control as normal. But then there's the fact that I can ask them to talk about posts that they might want to scroll past and avoid. So their agency to avoid things is actually interrupted because I can see their thoughts essentially on their Facebook timeline. So that was probably one really interesting one as well. So those would be a few that I can think of for the time being. I guess there's a quite and quite a different variety of findings and they're probably not, you know, if, if one can't probably group them into one silo or bucket and say, okay, this is what we're learning about this. I guess you're, because of your research area and your research uh, is, is wide in a sense because of the social media aspect of it. Maybe a little bit more information, if you don't mind, or delving a little bit more into this uh, emergency remote education. That's something that's really uh, piqued my interest because it's sort of close to some of the work I'm doing as well. How have you found, because uh, as an example, like we, I am also a teacher and like, you know, on a Friday we get the, we have an emergency meeting saying on Monday, you're going, we're going to do remote learning. And none of us actually have even heard of Zoom doing online teaching before, but obviously um, the technology, running the class, recording, all of that stuff. But how, how did you find or what are you finding from the teacher's perspective and maybe some of the anecdotal evidence from a learner's perspective of this whole phenomenon working remotely in through using this technology? Uh, yeah, so I had quite a few examples of that. So I guess some of the initial things were just the stress of doing it because it was so quick that teachers had to go online for. And then another big issue, which we've probably seen in the media reports, was around the technology that the teachers needed to use. So at least in Queensland and I think New South Wales, they were using, I mean, it was changing all the time. So one of the teachers was saying she was also head of department and she said just every day we were getting a different thing. And a particular concern for language teachers in high schools is they have really small classes, which means, she said, often I'd have a student arriving to our online lesson and there's no one else in the room with us, you know, in the digital space. And we're not supposed to be alone with students. So she'd have to call a colleague in just to be there because she's not supposed to be alone with a student. So there were kind of these weird ethical or regulatory things around it, but certainly a lot of stress around what technology needed to be used what and it changing a lot. But then other teachers had really positive experiences and were really enjoying it. So another teacher that I spoke to said that for the particular type of language teaching she was doing, which was an immersion approach, it actually worked really well for her students. So I think it depends on the students. Another issue I suppose that came up is the fact that as a language teacher, it doesn't mean your only students are language students. You may have other students. It depends how your department is organised, and often language departments are combined with other departments. And one teacher said, well, I work with a lot of students with additional needs, and in those classes there are issues because the students get more embarrassed about asking for help because they have to do it in a more open way in front of everyone, whereas in the classroom they just turn to the person next to them and quietly ask for help. So... Those were, would be a couple of things. I haven't asked the university educators yet, so that's all from high school teachers, and I do think it's going to be quite a different experience. Myself, I've been doing it online with university students, and I've had local and international students, and even within those two groups, it's completely different. I can't get 
it's like teaching into an abyss with my international students. They're, they're there and they are doing their work, but they don't like turning their video or microphones on. Whereas the students are, you know, a little bit more willing to do that, um, but their attendance isn't as good. So there's things to consider with every group, I think. That was my next question. Did you find any difference between the secondary and tertiary cohorts? But uh, yeah, it's interesting. And um, I guess you're right. You know, I teach primarily international students, but because our classes are small, they have no option, but they have to turn it on. So then they kind of have to, you know, be be part yeah. of the process. But yeah, it's, that's quite interesting. And uh, everyone was navigating these challenges as they went along. And so moving along, Daniel, I think the um, next part of podcast today was was around the actual, in terms of your study itself, uh, what are some of the challenges you found? Uh, you definitely allude, alluded to some of them early on, but overall from your first year as a PhD student to you know the point you are right now, like what are some of the challenges that you found and are actually in the research itself? Yeah, I think I definitely mention and I will include that I had to rescope my project. That is by far the the biggest challenge that I had. It was something I had to do in an incredibly short amount of time. It was very stressful. It worked out for the best, but it was a lot of work and very stressful. So that's probably the number one challenge. But other than that, I think it was just really working out the method that I wanted to use and also the analysis the way I wanted to analyze the data and making sure that that was something that the whole research team was comfortable with. So I'm in the School of Education, but my project very much feels like sociolinguistics and my supervisors are kind of one in each. So trying to find something that everyone's comfortable with and everyone feels like they can support in the project, that, that's been really, really hard. I feel like we're at a really good place now, but it's taken a lot of brainstorming and back and forth and changes. So that's certainly one one challenge that I've had. Otherwise, challenges, I guess just feeling like you're making progress and doing all the things that you need to be doing and feeling like you're doing what you need to be doing to get a job at the end of this. That's really hard. Yeah, particularly with COVID and we, uh, yeah, that makes it 10 times harder. So publishing, I mean, that's that's hard. I think if you can publish something, it's great. It's certainly a very good learning experience, but the referencing for the paper that I did was something I'd never used before. And EndNote, if I, if I can say one other challenge, EndNote. My goodness, that's software. <laughs> uh, you mentioned um, publishing. Okay. I'll probably stay a little bit longer in the challenges section, but in terms of publishing, is there a kind of a pressure, but is there a kind of a push towards like, you know, X amount of publications before you leave kind of thing? How is the, um, you know, how is the culture around that? Certainly from my supervisors, they're really relaxed about it. They're not worried. However, I think maybe we should be more worried because otherwise we come out without publishing a lot. I'm in this, as I said, I'm in the School of Education and Actually, one of my supervisors is in the School of Languages and Cultures. So I think those two schools and humanities a little bit more in general don't put anywhere near the same amount of pressure on their students to publish because we don't have anything we can publish for a really long time. In other fields, I have got friends who've told me by their confirmation they need to have published a meta-analysis. And I mean, I can't even do a meta-analysis for my topic. So what would I publish? My literature review? That would just be weird. So no, but... 
then again, from all of the students that I've spoken to who have finished, they've all said to me, I wish I published during my thesis. I wish I published things, you know, thought laterally around things I could do. So I've certainly been trying to think around side projects that I could do as well as parts of my thesis that I can publish so that I don't finish and think, I wish I did that. I have a goal in my own head, but certainly there's no hard and fast rule. I mean, I think in my school they say a couple would be great, but even that is nice to have. It's not essential. The times that we're in, every sector on earth is pretty much, uh, you know, everyone's losing their jobs and there's some jobs might never come back. And then, mm. you know, we might publish X amount of articles, but then what? how does that landscape look like in two, three years? So these are, I guess, mm. uh, challenges that probably evolve uh, in the coming years. Moving along, uh, Daniel, now, I guess uh, an important feature of your work is uh, along the communication side of things in terms of the work you're doing, conferences, journals, funding, etc. Some information could be, for example, you mentioned some tools of analysis that you mentioned earlier. Some of them were new. So they were, this could sound a bit technical. So how do you find, not only in the tools of analysis, but in terms of your data, your methodology, etc., how do you find the you know, you change your communication techniques or the way you let uh, these stakeholders be kind of subscribed to your to your research. Oh, it's definitely a challenge because even the theories that I'm using are really complicated. So one of them is philosophy that comes from a quantum physicist and the other is philosophy that comes from a primatologist. So, you know, they're using words and terms that are really complicated. So even for me, I'm struggling a lot of the time to make sense of it. So then trying to translate that to a general audience, it is really hard. And it is something I'm constantly struggling with. And even when I when I publish this, I have to often give definitions. It's just a lot of definitions, a lot of explaining, okay, the term responsible, this is what I mean when I use it. So it's a lot of that. But I really try to take the approach, particularly when I'm working with teachers, I'm working with a lot of teachers, that these are not things teachers can't understand or that are beyond teachers. I mean, they're very educated people that are very capable of understanding complex information. And I haven't had any issues. In fact, I would say when I used some of these really complex terms with the high school teachers, there was no issue with it at all. They, As long as I explained what the words meant, it it was okay. So I think for me, it's it's a lot of giving definitions and being aware of which words will need to be defined as well. Because even the word languaging that I use a lot, to me, it seems kind of obvious because I've read it so many times now, but for others, I just need to remember to break it down. Otherwise, it would be podcasts like this where I have to really think about talking to other people, maybe just talking to my husband and my other friends and my sister who's a nurse, so she's not in this space either, or friends who work in different areas. But I must admit, it's definitely something I'm still working on and hoping to get better at. But we actually have a forum coming up at the university on alternative like places to publish, and I think that could be another really good way to go. I know other students do blogs or opinion pieces where you need to write a little bit more, I guess, in simple terms, and I think that's probably a few of those things are things I could consider doing to just, yeah, I definitely get lost in the theory and the big words. It's it's a struggle. Another question I had like along along those lines was, did you find, you know, sometimes people talk about, like say in the business world, they talk about the elevator pitch. Your kind of, your your research has been rescoped. Have you had any thinking around that? And, you know, like 
what have you sort of come up with in saying, okay, this is what it means? How was that process for you? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm still asking the same question. I'm still looking at the same thing. I'm just looking in a different place. So I'm still interested in responsible Spanish language practices, which is essentially what is our capacity to respond in regards to the ways in which we use Spanish in Australia or in, in which we teach Spanish and learn Spanish. But yeah, if you elevate a pitch wise, again, not probably not my forte. I'm probably never going to enter the three minute thesis competition. I'm not good at keeping to word counts or word or time limits or anything like that. I think my method that I have now makes it a little bit easier, but with practice, I think you get better at that. And certainly the rescoping allowed me to narrow down my research question. It's really, I can say it's this one question now, and that's all I need. You can do an 80,000 word thesis and really be focusing on, I mean, I, I definitely have sub questions, but my main question is that. So practice and yeah, practice. I think that's the main one. Yeah, that, that's really good advice uh, for all of us. I guess moving on to the latter half of our discussion today, I'll probably leave the question we which we spoke right at the top, maybe to the yeah. end. Um, <laughs> okay. But so how do you, what do you do beyond the world of research? How do you like take off your research hat and, you know, just forget about all these interesting yeah. things that you're doing and how do you sort of relax? Uh, another thing I'm not good at, definitely. <laughs> Even yesterday, I was like, I'll take a break. And I ended up looking at calls, like special issue calls yesterday for journals. And now that my research looks at social media, it's even harder because I think I'll just go and sit on Facebook for a bit, but then I get ideas for things I could research. So no, but otherwise just general things. Fitness is probably one big thing. We've definitely built uh, a bit of a home gym because of COVID. So now we have so much gym equipment and I do enjoy working out and Netflix would be another one. So I'm always looking for the latest show in Spanish or even German. And I found one last night. So I'm quite excited. It is about a pandemic uh, sort of dystopian thing. So maybe it's going to be too close to home, but one episode in and I'm still interested. Normally I'd also be traveling a lot, but that's obviously off the cards at the moment. So travel, Netflix, fitness, those are the main things. Moving on. Yeah, I guess this is probably the time to ask the question which we were talking about earlier. So we spoke about different, we'll say different findings and different, totally different areas. Probably mm. two parts to this question. What do you feel could be some potential impacts of your study? And where do you personally feel that out of some of these findings, you would like to go next post-PhD? Yeah, I think, I mean, ideally, I would like to see everyone learning heritage, their heritage language in Australia, particularly Indigenous languages, and I would love to see more support for that and more development in the curriculum. I'd love to see the Australian curriculum for all the languages incorporating a broader understanding of what languaging is. Currently, there's something called translanguaging that is mentioned only in one language, which is Hindi, and that's kind of, it's not code switching, which many people have heard of, but it's about drawing on all your linguistic resources, which could be using social media. It could be using multiple languages, but certainly things like that, strategies like that, I'd love to see that incorporated across a broader range of languages, especially Spanish. It, it, there's a lot of research on that in Spanish. On a policy level, um, I'm working on sort of a side project that's looking at our languages policies. So these aren't necessarily in the education space, but they influence the health space a lot more. And I'd like to see uh, some more provisions around what 
resources are provided during emergency situations because we actually don't have that in every state. So certainly strengthening our languages policies in general to make sure that multilingual communication is valued, is catered to, is funded and planned for in particularly in emergency situations. And I guess that also feeds into seeing education be a little bit more prepared for world language education in emergency situations because I do get the sense that out of all the subject areas that would be focused on to prepare for that, languages may not be at the top of the, the, the list for that, but it's certainly incredibly important. In terms of where I'd like to go, that is something I've certainly had to rethink this year. So I always had a backup plan with what I'd be doing after my PhD if I didn't get my dream, you know, lecturer role somewhere. And that's completely gone now. I don't have that backup plan. And you would know just as well as I do that the, the job landscape is not looking particularly promising for someone finishing their PhD in the next 18 months. So I do have a lot of experience and I'll probably have quite a few papers and be fairly competitive, but I'm still not feeling very confident. So I'm doing a placement through my PhD with the CSIRO in the land and water department, and we will be looking at social and cultural norms around water regulation. And given my background in Spanish, they've asked me to do a little bit of liaising with the Chilean department. So that's a totally different field, but certainly there's a lot that I feel I can offer in looking at social and cultural norms. So I'm just trying to broaden myself I guess in terms of the skills and, and maybe even publications that I have, maybe try to do some at least one publication in a slightly different area around that so that uh, I'll be a bit more competitive for roles outside of academia. I, I never really considered roles outside of academia, but now I'm quite open to a government role or even something in industry because I've seen a few things come up and thought, oh, that actually sounds pretty cool. So certainly I don't, I don't know if I'll be in academia now and I'm not sure that I want to be if we have to keep teaching online as much as we do I don't love it I, I, I like doing it a little bit but doing as much of it as I have been it's yeah not probably something I'd want to be doing full-time and I think then if it does go back face-to-face -face as well there's a lot less flexibility in that so being able to have something that's quite flexible uh, that maybe still lets me use research skills, go somewhere different. I, I'm not naive. I know that researching Spanish in Australia is probably not something I'm going to get a postdoc in. So I'm just trying to look at the skills that I've got from my thesis, looking at you know linguistic uh, ways of uh, analysing things and thinking, well, how could that be useful in uh, even a really random area like the land and water department at the CSIRO? Interesting and challenging, uh, I guess, a set of uh, thoughts and uh, direction that you might be going into and it 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 definitely seems that uh, you're extremely driven and you're extremely uh, thinking laterally you know how you could make uh, the next phase uh, of your journey come come to come to life which is great obviously everyone is going through these challenges and uh, uh, it's something that hopefully will give us give you that dream job you know, give us the opportunity to kind of uh, get as close as possible to that, that work. And that, that's part of, I guess, part of the journey as well. Daniel, we'd like to thank you for joining us on Half-Time Scholars. Thank you for your time. It was a really rich conversation. Uh, I would like to wish you all the very best in every endeavor and uh, hopefully have you back on again someday in the future, maybe when you have a postdoc and when you landed that dream job. Thank you so much and thank you for the really interesting questions and giving me the opportunity to talk about my research for this extended period of time. <laughs> Thanks. Mm -hmm.
That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. If you like us, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join us for the next episode.